as Italy now faces its 68th government in 75 years, and we have what felt like 75 years watching two stars, we now have the arrival of two new ones. Welcome to the Anglo-Italian pod. My name is Rory Crisquolo. You can follow us on Twitter at at Italian Anglo pod. You almost messed it up. And I'm Tommaso Adami and you can find us on Instagram at Anglo Italian pod. Rory, buddy, how are you doing? Every time I try, every time I nearly get the Twitter handle wrong. This time I got it wrong. At at Italian Anglo pod, guys. Still not getting it. Tommy, I am good. I'm all right. Um, We are Arsenal have just kicked off and I've not checked the score yet, but I'm feeling okay because I've not checked the score yet. Tommy, how are you? I'm doing good. I'm doing actually very, very good. And uh, I always repeat the same thing, but no, I'm happy to be here. I'm a little nervous for the for the weekend's clash, the Milan Derby. We shall see how that one goes, but overall, I'm doing just great. Rory, what are we looking at in our episode today? So this week, we have a lot. We are going to be doing our first Champions League roundup for what feels like a good while. Some great games some great individual performances and some intriguing setups for second legs. So I'm excited about that. We'll then be taking you to the now customary, who am I quiz? Can I trip up Tommy or is he going to outfox me in the box? We shall find out. And then we have an interview and we're very excited about this interview. It is the author, traveler, football fanatic, all round nice guy, Paul Watson. He will be telling us about his adventures within football and the outposts he has found himself at and challenges he has faced guys if you're tired of quarantine and not traveling we're going to make you travel today i'll just tell you that we're going to travel to a remote island of the pacific ocean and to the windswept plains of central asia are you ready for that you better be bring your coat it gets fucking cold but now it's time for the who am i quiz tommy let's quiz it's quiz time and here we are at the in the who am i quiz tommy how are you feeling i'm feeling redier than ever no i'm not but i'm uh, this quiz secretly deep down scares me um there has no been there has not been a clear winner so far and uh, i kind of want to be the first one but i don't know if i got what it takes We'll, see. well, we're about to find out, Tommy, because right. I've been messaging, I've been messaging friends all week, and they've been like, "You're not very good at this quiz, are you?" Like, no, I don't think I am. <laughs> like, I'm pretty terrible at it. You want to remind the rules to our new listeners? So the rules are: um, we describe a player, and we talk. The things we use to describe them are the club they spent the shortest amount of time at their number of caps and goals for their country, their number of goals in their entire career, and three of their teammates. So go. I'm listening. Tommy, this player, he spent the least amount of time at Kaiserslautern. What? Kaiserslautern? Kaiserslautern. The infamous Kaiserslautern, whatever. I believe they used to be good, but I don't know. He spent his least time at Kaiserslautern. His, he has 98 caps for his country, scoring 42 goals. That's a tally for you. Nice. 
He has 159 goals in his career in total. Okay. And he has played with the likes of Roy Mackay. Do you remember that guy? Not really, no. No? Oh, my God, that guy was lethal. Anyway, Cloud Makalele. I do remember that guy. And Ricardo Quaresma. Ooh, la, 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 la. Okay, so... Off the top of my head, we're talking about uh, an offensive midfielder slash striker because 98 appearances and 42 goals for his home country. That sounds like an important, uh, I mean, an important tally. I, I, I Actually, as I'm repeating it, I'm thinking only of a striker. The Makelele uh, hint, I'm thinking of Chelsea, of course. That's the team that I associate the most to Claude Makelele. And then the Quaresma hint... Quaresma has been around for quite some time. So he's still playing and he's been around for a good like 15, 16 mm, years. So it's a tricky hint because it could be, ah, but we, you did tell them in the chronological order. Yeah. Yes. Okay. So <laughs> that's the least convincing yes ever, but I'm pretty sure it's a yes. Yeah. yeah. Okay. It's a, and, and the first hint you gave me, Roy McCoy. Roy Mackay. Mackay, I don't remember. Do you remember? It, so um, oh, I don't want to give too much away, but no, he not... had a really good strike partnership with um, another uh, with the Argentinian guy in Deportivo. But anyway, oh, I can't okay. remember his name now. Pan. Christ, this is terrible. But yeah, okay. he was really good for a few years. Like, really good. Big nose. Really big nose. Since you said Deportivo, then I will take this as a hint. And in the second part of the quiz, I will only ask you two questions. Nice. Food for thought. I'll think about it. Let's jump to the Euro review and we'll see you guys after the weekly topic with the Who Am I quiz answer. We are in the Euro review and we are back with Champions League action. Tommy, it's been too long. It has been too long. It's kind of funny, this competition, isn't it? Even if your team is not in it, when you hear that anthem, your blood starts boiling in your veins and you're like, let's go. It's Champions League football. I was honestly so excited to watch Barca PSG. Like at work, all the kids were talking about it, like arguing between who was going to win between Messi and Neymar and Messi and Mbappe. And I was getting really like, oh man, this game could be really good. This game could be really good. So since we're both teachers, do you usually enjoy talking football with the younger students you have? Um, yeah. But then there's one kid in my class who's decided that he's going to support Tottenham just because I support Arsenal, and it kind of annoys me a little bit. <laughs> wow, Max and Carl are probably listening to this and jumping on their chair. <laughs> yeah, he keeps telling me every time Arsenal lose on the Monday, I go into school and he's like, they're a good team, aren't they, Villa? Oh, go away, man. you got more homework. <laughs> like... And this kid is probably not going to live a very happy football supporter life. So, Well, that's it. I, I, I did say to him in kind of kinder terms, like, you've really picked a bad team for a bad reason. <laughs> like... But before we go to Champions League football, Rory, as we're recording, it's Europa League time. So the It's last... the big one. It's the big one. What's going on at the moment? So at the moment, we have Young Boys, um, the team, not a collection, currently 3-2 up over Bayer Leverkusen in the biggest um, shock of the night so far. Tottenham are beating Wolfsburger 3-1. 
United 2-0 up to Sociedad. And Roma beating Braga 1-0. So a few, not too many surprises at the moment. Um, Kvena Svezda have just equalized against Milan. So there you go, Tom. You might enjoy that one. Yeah. And uh, you know who's coaching them? You know who is their manager? I don't. Dejan Stankovic, man. Dejan Stankovic. And we're going to get into this, but we are ahead of the Milan Derby and Stankovic is playing Milan. Stankovic, a Nerazzurro legend. And last night, very quickly, Juventus Porto, who's the coach for Porto, Conceição, who's also a, a good name that played at Inter. Yeah. Nice. And A, hey, two goals by Bruno Fernandes in the Real Sociedad Man United game. Of course oh. it was. Of course it was. So, we're going to start in Catalonia. We're going to start in Barcelona. Woo, baby. Where this game, now I said that during the day I was really excited about this game. I was getting quite like pumped up. And usually these games are a bit of a disappointment. They're cagey affairs where nobody really wants to do anything. No one wants to attack. This game did not disappoint. The whole first half, I was sat, I had a moment on the sofa. I was like, man, I'm just... I'm really enjoying this game. It's just really fun to watch. It was like two teams genuinely going for it, playing really nice football, some great players on display. And PSG suddenly are looking like a force in Europe now, not just in France, but they're starting to especially get into the final last year. And now basically putting Barcelona out in one tie away they're looking like they could be a force. And I think I said this to you earlier, Tommy. It felt to me like this week especially, but even this game, felt a bit like a passing of the torch from one generation to the new. What do you think? Finally, because I'm starting to get tired of the whole Messi-Ronaldo thing. It's nice to see bright young talent coming up. And, uh, well, let's just make the name. Kylian Bappé with a hat-trick at the Camp Nou not many people have done it. One of them, notably, Andriy Vyshevchenko, when he was playing at Dynamo Kiev. Okay, right now there are no fans. Barcelona are going through quite a few hardships. So maybe it's not as intense as Shevchenko's, you know, hat-trick. But still, this kid, the thing that amazes me about this type of talent is that we've been talking about this kid since he was at Monaco. And I always think, I always put myself in the guy's shoes. Too much pressure around me at the moment. But the guy kept improving. He made the big move to PSG, became already one of their top goal scorers. And he he doesn't seem intended to leave as of now. We'll get to that later. But he keeps improving. He keeps delivering. He, the guy has already won a World Cup. And right now, his PSG are looking like finally like a UCL contender. They were last year. And the game against Barcelona, I think, that showed also a passing of the torch from one of Europe's most historical clubs in the last 20 years to maybe a newcomer in PSG. Well, it feels like they've really got a project going there, right? With um, Pochettino taking charge, like a real kind of project manager. And some of the football was absolutely beautiful. But Kylian Mbappe is terrifying. He is terrifying. That obviously we've all seen the meme in the picture now of PK desperately trying to grab onto his shirt. Like he just tore that defense to pieces. And one player that we were WhatsApping about during the game, Tommy, Marco Verratti, maybe finally 
he might start getting some recognition for how good a player he is if he can stay fit, right? That's the biggest thing with Verratti. You need to stay fit at key moments. He always misses tournaments. I feel like he's always overlooked, but that guy was running the show in that game. So, yeah, Verratti is... Uh, so, I did say in the in our Transpond football chat, mm-hmm. I love the name, by the way. Good job yeah, yeah. <laughs> for coming up with it. But I'm... Um, Verratti is not actually overlooked. Like everybody in Italy knows that he's a class midfielder. Let's not forget that the guy used to play at Pescara, coached by Zeman, together with Lorenzo Insigne and Ciro Immobile when Pescara were promoted from Serie B to Serie A. I think it's one of the few first cases of a player who used to play in Serie B and automatically went to PSG right away. So Insigne went to Napoli, Immobile, I believe, went to Genoa at first, Mm -hmm. yes, if I'm not mistaken, and Verratti, there were the top European clubs behind him. So Barcelona, Real Madrid, PSG, and PSG snatched him. He's been there, I mean, he's already a club club regular, a club legend, kind of. He's been there since 2014, if I'm not mistaken. And uh, the last time he was at the Nou Camp, I remember he he nutmegged a certain Andres Iniesta, and uh, in the game, and then we interviewed Filippo Giovagnoli, the head coach for Dundalk FC, and he said that in his ideal team, he would put him at central midfield. And in the game against Barcelona, you kind of see the importance of such a player that can defensively help the team get the ball in front of the box, mm-hmm. get rid of one or two players, and sort of like start the move, the attacking, the attacking maneuver of the team. Let's not forget it was one of three Italians in the pitch that all of them really impressed me. We're talking of Alessandro Florenzi on the right wing. We're talking of Moise Keane on the right wing, but up front, kind of a, an interesting position he was playing in. And Verratti in uh, right behind the the right behind the the striker. So I'm very. I was very positively impressed, and I think that Italy, once again, I'm not holding back, have a good chance of performing during the Euro 2021 Championship. But Rory, let's talk about the game. What were your impressions right after kickoff? Um, I my main my main impressions were Barcelona are washed. They need so much work in that squad. It just I think they almost need a clean break now. They just need to start a new era. There needs to be a clear line in the sand. If that involves Messi going or whatever it is, I think they need to move on from the era that they had, which was an incredible era, and start to build on the next one. For PSG, I feel like Pochettino is going to do such a good job there. Pochettino is going to do such a good job there. We know how great a coach he is. He did well. He did very well with Tottenham in the Champions League, if you know what I mean. So if he can, he's now got the resources, and he's got Mbappe in his fucking team with Neymar. Like what he could do with that squad is quite frightening. So I think there are certain teams that I would always worry about within the Champions League, but now PSG are shifting to the maybe we worry about them in a different way. But the game, I just absolutely loved it. I thought it was a really real like. Ding dong. It felt like in the first half, it was kind of almost basketball matchy. They were like one guy attacked, the next team attacked, then they attacked, then they attacked. There was no midfield. It was all a bit wild. And then PSG, yeah, just Mbappe was the difference. And for him to do that at the new camp, uh, he, he, the fact he's won a World Cup already and like 
he's achieved so much at such a young age. <laughs> You've yeah, still got another 10, 15 years in your career. Like, know, what are it, you going to do? Like, I did yeah. I did watch an interview with him and it said that it's his family that takes care of everything and he's got a very good relationship with his family. They take care of everything, transfer, budgets and whatever. I think it's very good for a young, bright star to be unlike Zaniolo in Italy that has been in the front cover of mm. many magazines for banging a girl while he's dating another one, knocking up another one and all that. I feel like Mbappe is getting the right type of attention. About Barcelona, man, I did think the same thing. They're washed up. Piquet and Messi, okay? Piquet, he was partially injured. He was not mm-hmm. at the fittest. I, he's not, he doesn't have the age anymore to compete with um, Mbappe. It kind of felt like the other day when Lukaku shouldered Parolo and went for it. Like, Parolo, mad respect for your career. But... It feels like the old the old souls kind of need to yeah. take a step back. And uh, Piquet and Messi, they just looked tired. Look at their mm-hmm. faces during the game. Like, they, they've got, like, these black eye bags. Like, they look... They don't have that drive in them. And uh, the thing that struck me the most about Barcelona was the underwhelmingness of their front mm-hmm. three. Like, besides Messi, Dembélé defensive effort zero and Griezmann is playing in my opinion out of position like this I I am a huge Griezmann fan I was a I've been a fan since he was at Real Sociedad and then I I loved seeing him deliver that many goals at Atletico Madrid but right now it's very underwhelming to see he was never a good fit for Barcelona they got him because he was a big name within the league that's the only reason why they signed him yeah, and uh, Dembélé, remember when Barcelona got Dembélé, when Neymar went to PSG mm-hmm. and Barcelona were like, oh, God, God damn it, we need like a big signing. We need to make our supporters forget about Neymar. All right, all in on Dembélé. And Dembélé is a super talented player. But once again, it feels like very short-sighted business from Barcelona, yeah. if you know what I mean. And uh, they could have done a much better job throughout the years also weighing in that maybe there is the possibility that at some point Messi will leave I mean at the end of the day you're a business and you do need to think about your employees and if you if you if you don't and if you kind of hope that Messi is always going to stay forever then the managing of the rest of the team is going to be what it is on the other side uh, PSG they looked very lively from the very beginning I think it was unfair that they went down 1-0. However, upon seeing the replay, it was a penalty. Um, however, they did deserve to tie the game and eventually take that lead. Um, I was also very impressed by Florenzi and Cordzawa on the wings. I feel like that's a very uh, important part of the field for Pochettino. And I don't know if, listeners, it was the same for you, but me and Roy got a broadcast where you could hear everything happening in the pitch. And I don't know if you noticed the Pochettino switching the languages for players, speaking in Italian to Keen, Florenzi and Verratti, speaking in Spanish to Cardi and in French as well. And I think that that's a huge thing for a manager to be able, because if you speak to me in English or if you speak to me in Italian, as I'm in the pitch, I feel like when you tell it, when you say to me as Ita- in Italian, as an Italian man, I kind of get the information better and they want to listen to you more. Oh, mate, honestly, Arteta does it, and I absolutely love hearing it. He'll, like, shout to the David Luiz in Portuguese, and they'll shout at Ceballos in Spanish, and then French at, like, Lacazette, and you're like, oh, my God, I love it. I absolutely love it. And, yeah, being able to hear the players shout, I was like, there was a slight part of me that was like, 
okay, obviously it's terrible. It's awful that there's no fans in the stadium, right? We all hate it. We all want fans back in the stadium. But I really enjoy being able to hear what the players are shouting at each other. I just find it so fascinating because it's the same things that you hear on Sunday League. It's just people shouting like, yours, clear it, get rid. And even though it's like elite level football, they're still shouting the same things. And I just find it really entertaining. The, the Sal, the kind of, there's like a one minute, two minute clip of PK just swearing when they're trying to defend a corner. It is fucking brilliant. And, and I love, I love the, 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 hear, the thing you heard the most from the Barcelona baseline was ojo al centro, ojo al centro, like careful in the middle. And every time there was PK struggling to hold some forward. But um, yeah, it feels like a passing off the torch. I'm very happy for PSG. Guys, don't fuck it up this time. You've got a big lead. Go to the Parc de France, believing in yourself. You you have more than one foot to the quarterfinals. Now I don't want to jinx it. I'm not usually a fan of these superstar teams, but I've got to get a liking for PSG at the end of the day. Absolutely. And I love that I'm. I don't know. I, I'm. Lo- I love that I'm kind of seeing Mbappe's career from the very beginning, like growing, and I will be able to tell my kids like that I've seen him from the very beginnings. But on the same night in Germany, what happened, Rory? Did you see this result coming? So I did. Well, no, not really. Did I see Liverpool winning this? No, I feel like if we looked back on our um, beauty of a Monday broadcast, I'm pretty sure that I talked about how Leipzig were going to win this game. But Liverpool did it 2-0. Salah and Mane, the usual suspects. And from what I saw, it was a fairly comfortable performance from Liverpool. Kabak, the guy they've just got on loan from Schalke, the young Turkish guy, had a very good game. Um, and things are starting to look a bit rosier for Liverpool, I suppose, before the derby this weekend. For Leipzig, Upamecano, the man of the moment, had an absolute stinker and kept giving the ball away, was passing the ball to Liverpool players constantly. And this is something that I was talking about it with... Um, with Chris and I, we were talking about, he was like, has this guy seriously gone to Bayern Munich? Like he's been terrible. I was like, well, whenever I've seen him, he does drop a clanger, like, but he's also a very young centre-back. This is what happens. But with Leipzig, I feel like you're kind of always prone to that because their focus is so much on producing young talent and like developing young talent that, yeah, every so often they'll have a good team, but sometimes the naivety or the lack of experience will be found out. And I think maybe that's what happened with Liverpool but that's a much-needed win, much-needed win for Jurgen Klopp. A bit more belief around the camp, I imagine. Yeah, the first goal, I really felt bad for it. Sabitzer, uh, Leipzig captain. The guy has been at Leipzig for so long, and uh, he's one of their key players. He performed really well in last year's Champions League, and he gave the ball away in a very poor fa- fashion for Salah's first goal. And the moment, I don't know if you noticed this, I kind of rewatched it over and over again because you see how bad he feels about it. He makes the wrong pass and sees Salah get the ball and instantly he puts a, a, a hand to his temple, starts running, and then he puts two hands as he's still running. And when he sees Salah scoring, he just puts both hands over his face and he's like, man, I am not supposed to be doing this. And there is that feeling that when you give Liverpool that away goal, it's going to go one way. So it's a big win. This is the thing about the Champions League. Every goal counts. And the 2-0 away win 
so difficult to overturn. So, so difficult to overturn unless you're not Liverpool and that night. <laughs> yeah, it's not that night in Anfield, right? I feel like, yeah, this should be now for Liverpool, especially with both the games being played in neutral venues. I think it does make a difference. Um, and I do think that at the, it comes to a point where it doesn't matter if the win is a 4-0 win, if it's a 2-0 win or a 1-0 win. Liverpool needed a win for their confidence. Mm-hmm. To be like, all right, we can keep going this season. We don't have the league anymore, which is yeah. pretty clear by now. But we can still perform in this competition, which we won two years ago. So that's nice to see. And also for Klopp, who's recently lost his um, his grandmother, his mother, sorry, his mother, wasn't, yeah, yeah. wasn't even able to go to the funerals. Um, yeah, it feels like uh, after all the scrutiny and bad luck that he's been exposed to, I feel like it feels good to see him win against the coach that many people say is the new club is the next club exactly yeah and i like we all love like i think even rival fans will begrudgingly like even united fans will begrudgingly say they like Klopp, right he's a charismatic guy he's a nice guy he just seems like someone you'd love to have a beer with and i think we want to see that Klopp come back right the kind of the guy who's making jokes and Look, it's a it's a big win for them. It's the last thing Everton fans would have wanted to see before the derby. I think they would have quite liked the misery to be piled on before their game. But yeah, Liverpool should be through. I think um, they've got enough experience in that squad to be able to see it through. And yeah, congratulations, Liverpool. But before we move to Wednesday, a quick look at the results in the Europa League. Dinamo Zagreb up 3-2 against the Krasnodar. AC Milan up 2-1 versus Krvnena Zvezda. And the second goal is by Teo Hernandez. Penalty? Another penalty. Teo Hernandez on penalties. Interesting, interesting. And then we also see that Manchester United 3 0. Fernandez again. Oh, there we go. Rashford, the man of the year, according to Time Magazine, correct? Yes. Um, fucking fair play, Marcus, by the way. Yeah. yeah. Deserves a shout. And Young Boys Leverkusen still 3 Oh, actually, 3 3. Leverkusen have tied it. And Tottenham still winning 3 1. Thanks to Son Gareth Bale. And oh, he's finally scored. Yes. Who's back? Back again. They're going to win the league, I'm telling you, Rory. But Wednesday... Mate, they already won it in October. Did you miss it? They already won it in October. Together with uh, <laughs> Milan. We yeah. Won it in but let's move to Wednesday night football. We were in Spain where Sevilla lost 2-3. Are we going to talk about the rival for the rest of his lifetime of Kylian Mbappé. Yeah, so guys, the secret's out already. The new Messi Ronaldo is now Mbappé Haaland, right? That's the new the new one that's going to drive people mad on Twitter forever and people will get far too invested in. But Haaland, oh my god. <laughs> like just what a player. Like did I saw um, the journalist Sid Lowe today who kind of talks about Spanish football. He's um he was talking about it was the first time he'd seen Haaland in the flesh because he went to the stadium. And he said, seeing how the fans panic, how the players panic when they see Haaland, it just added a whole new dimension to his understanding of him as a player. Like, because he's got the pace, the power, the positioning, the technique, the finishing, the, like, everything. Like, the the severe defense were terrified of him. And they had every right to be because he punished them 
twice and very, very emphatically. I mean, the first goal starts from Erling Haaland on the right-hand side of the field, getting rid of three different players. And the way he does it, like, the guy is not only fast and big and has a powerful shot. The guy is incredibly technically technically skilled because he's surrounded by three players. He gets away, creates space, passes the ball. Then he's kind of expecting the ball to be passed back to him. But here comes an incredible goal by Mahmoud Dadud that I didn't really know who he was, but... Erling Island passes him the ball. And of course, you're expecting the one, the, the one, two, you know, you're expecting the, the back pass. But I love that moment when that guy's like, you know what? Fuck it. I'll put it on my right foot and snipe it to the top right corner. That was a beautiful, beautiful goal. And then, I mean, the other two goals, power, precision, determination. He's got it all. He's, well, he's going to be a big, big player. Well, that's it. Exactly. And, and in his first goal, he started the move for that first goal. And then finishes it. Like so he's got that all round game. I think we've talked about it before about how we think he was made in a laboratory on purpose to play football. Like he seems to have every single facet you need to be an elite footballer. And he is I'm so excited as to where his career is gonna go. I think he's gonna end up in the Premier League at some point. I hope. I just hope it's not Manchester United. I'm sorry. I'm that bitter. I just hope it's not Manchester United. I hope he goes to Man City. He's not going to go to Arsenal, so I'm not going to hope for that. But I hope he goes to Man City. I can see him absolutely smashing it in the Premier League in about three years' time. The guy is ridiculous. Think, what do you think is the ideal league, according to the side of play, for Kylian Mbappé and the ideal league for Erling Haaland? Now, Kylian Mbappé, now that's, that's a good question. I think... Yeah, man, the Premier League. In my uh, to have both of them in the Prem would be imagine, fucking unreal. Like. Imagine seeing Bappe running, running in these big-ass spaces because both teams are attacking the whole time. And he just like, imagine Salah, what he has done at Liverpool. Yeah, yeah, yeah. Salah on steroids. That's I can already see Arsenal defenders panicking as he runs towards them. <laughs> like, I can already see it in my mind. Whoever our future David Luiz is, him <laughs> shitting himself as Mbappe runs at him at 100 miles an hour. Yeah, I think Haaland I can definitely see in the Prem. I think he's got like the physicality. His dad played there. I think there's a bit of a kind of, I can see him in the Prem. Mbappe, I think it would be great to see him in Serie A. Because nobody would be able to keep up with him no, because nobody if, runs in Serie A. But spaces like if they if teams start playing with like like I don't know watch any intra game when we defend like there is no space for Mbappe to run through. I actually think Haaland would be more proper for the Serie A. Yeah, Mbappe. Yeah, man. People were saying about Lukaku like I don't know if Lukaku can deliver. Yeah, see what he's doing now. And I think that Haaland in Italy would be ooh, would be scary. Mbappé, I see him a little more in the pram. More space, more opportunity to run the line, the to run the sideline and all that. But you know, we shall see. We I shall don't... see, but we should talk about the game. We should actually talk about the game. I feel like Sevilla are always an entertaining side to watch. They weren't actually that bad. Um, I think they had a bad 20-minute spell, really, where the game just got away from them. But they did manage to get one back. Luke de Jong, who always just... Every time I see him, he scores. Like, <laughs> every game I see of Sevilla, he scores. So he managed to pull one back for them. It definitely means that they're still in with a shout. If we know anything about Dortmund this year and over a few years... 
is that they're not the most reliable team, right? So there is every chance that they could fuck this up. That second goal for Sevilla is huge. I think at 3-1, Dortmund go through. At 3-2, we don't know who's going to go through. I feel like that really, really keeps it open. Um, it was a good game again, very entertaining. Um, I was keeping an eye on Papu Gomez. He was a little bit quiet, unfortunately. He couldn't really get... Um, couldn't really get himself into the game. But yeah, two good football insides and just Haaland. Haaland, that, the the understanding that him and Sancho have together as well is really good to watch, really good to see. And Jude Bellingham, young English prospect, 17, crushing it in the midfield in a Champions League knockout stage. You love to see it. You love to see it. Nice. So, yeah, this is the thing. Like, it's a win, but it's only the first 90 minutes of the game. Mm -hmm. We're going to see the second half going to Sevilla with... uh, I'm sorry, going... Sorry, they were playing in Sevilla. Yeah, they're going to Dortmund. Yes, I mean, three away goals, it's good. But when you win 3-2, I think they're going to play it all in the the away leg. And there is no yellow wall this time. So it's all going to be football. No supporters pushing the team we shall see but then at the same time <laughs> i mean how excited are you to talk about this game by the way you see this i will actually give a news to the listeners so together with some friends we're working on a board game related to football and last night we had a big meeting to kind of like get out more of our ideas flowing start to design the board and everything more to follow i think it could be something fun but so I didn't watch the games. I did watch the highlight. But, you know, after one minute since the game has started, I checked the score. <laughs> and they had already, they were already up one deal and they didn't see it coming. And they, like Michael, my friend, you've seen him already. You've heard him in the pod already. He's a hardcore Inter Milan fan. He was speaking about the board game, but I started smiling. And I was like, I'm sorry, Michael, I really have to interrupt you. Look at this. They're already <laughs> one nil down. Okay, I did not watch the game. Rory, I know you had a double screen action going. Tell me about it. Well, I was just really impressed by Porto. I was just really, like, I think I was kind of talking them down previously and saying, like, they're always in the knockout round, but then they never really go much further. They're just always, you know, there's always players there that are going to go on and do bigger, better things. And I think almost Juve were maybe a little bit too cocky. Juventus cocky, can you imagine it? Um... I think maybe maybe they were a little bit too cocky and they took it a bit lightly. But like Porto, clinical, I would still say that this is Juve's to win, really. If they're, the next leg is in Turin, Ronaldo will drag them through somehow. But Porto were able to expose their defensive weaknesses. Chesney had a bit of a shocker, especially on the first goal. Um and but I think the key moment again, and this is what you were just saying about every goal counting. The key moment is that Juventus got one. If they hadn't have got one, I would say okay, maybe they're going to get. Maybe Porto will go through. But now they've got one. You're thinking, okay, Juventus score one at home, then they're already going through. Like so, it it feels kind of like it's a great result for Porto. But I still think Juve will go through. We we have gotten we have kind of gotten used in the recent years to see Juventus underperforming the first leg and then just you know, nailed the second leg. Still, last night's defeat without Chiesa's goal would be tricky. Still, 2-0 against Juventus. You have to visit them at home. It's not enough, but it's a win. Okay, it's a win. 
they are winning the first half. I like to think of the Champions League two legs as one half, another half. They're winning the first one, but Juventus got a shit ton of stick for their performance last night. Rio Ferdinand said that Juve were horrible. Del Piero, he just said that Juventus were lacking ideas. Vieri said absolutely nothing from Juventus. Capello, would you ever guess? Postman Pat. Postman Pat. He was the most vocal about it, and he said eight defenders versus three Porto players, and they score. That just can't happen. It's unacceptable. And uh, Cassano also said that... Oh, another pod favorite. Fucking love a bit of Cassano. What's he got to say about it? Know that these guys have copied us, Rory? They have their own fucking seemingly podcast going to on YouTube, and you would never guess they've got more listeners than us. Ah, oh, fucking El Antonio, chuck us a few, please. Come on, man. I'll give you a cake. Just chuck us a few listeners. In the living room, and it's usually Castano, Adani, and Vieri, and they just chat about football. What's oh, I love there? it already. And man, they they did some they did say some heavy words about a few Italian pundits without saying their name, but making it very clear who they are. <laughs> yeah, I love it. Oh, you mean the short guy with black hair? Yeah, he sucks. Like this type <laughs> of stuff, you know. But yeah, very under underwhelming performance by Juventus. Chiesa's goal could be really crucial. For that was them. a great goal as well. That was a really nice goal. And uh, Juventus have got another, like they didn't think they would have to think about this one too, but it's not looking pretty in Serie A. It's not looking pretty in the Champions League. And you've got a final against Atalanta in the Coppa Italia. Can we talk about Chiesa quickly? Because I feel like he's actually been a very good signing for them. He is a very good signing. So ever since Baggio... Oh my God, what did I see today? Rory, a Netflix documentary about Baggio is coming out. On the Netflix Italia page, they just said prossimamente, which is basically coming soon. Um, Also, quick fact. I went to the Netflix Italia page for the first time today. You know what the description is? Go on. It's... Tadum, which is the sound. <laughs> Tadum. And they thought it was genius. But yeah, Roberto Baggio, ever since Baggio moved from Fiorentina to Juventus, that was, uh, that was like the end of the respect between the two mm-hmm. clubs. Like Fiorentina fans are very vocal about Juventus. They hated that move. And Bernardeschi, who's also at Juventus, did the same move. Chiesa, of course, was the biggest talent mm-hmm. that Fiorentina had. But yeah, man, as much as I don't like the guy because he's a flopper, he's kind of a whiny player. Um, he's got a really annoying face. I feel like I just, it's not the the best insight, but he's just got a face you kind of want to slap. Like, yeah, I know. Yeah. He looks like a whiny kid. Like, I don't know. But he's class. And uh, I do understand why he, he, Italian pundits and in Italy in general, he has been you know, really pushed for the past five years. He's got an incredible change of pace. He's mm-hmm. got the dribbling quality. He can cross, he can shoot, he can change position throughout the play. He's a he's a, absolutely a very talented player. Yet again, another Italian offensive player mm-hmm. um, that Mancini can rely on big time this summer. So yeah, the crucial player with a crucial goal did not come from Cristiano Ronaldo, whom I heard was not at his best during the game against Porto. Well, you know, he is mortal. It will happen every so often, I suppose. Uh, but yeah, just because every time I see Chiesa, he, he pops up with something and he gets, or it always seems like the late winner or the key goal is scored by him. So I think, especially at the beginning of the season, I heard a lot of people talking about how that could pot- potentially be a big flop of the transfer and, 
maybe like don't get him in your fantasy team because he's never going to play or whatever. And then all of a sudden this season, he's been one of their best players. So fair play Federico, not Enrico. That's his dad, right? Federico. Um, Yeah, absolutely killing it at Juventus. But a result that was as bad as their shirt. So unlucky Juventus. We move on to the next leg. Nice. And... Europa League, the games are still going. We're at the 90th minute. Olympiacos up 4-2 against PSV Eindhoven. Man United, they bag a fourth thanks to James. And Tottenham win comfortably 4-1 with the last fourth goal by... Let's see if you guess, Rory. Kane. Do you remember this guy scoring against Marine? He's such a sick player. <laughs> oh, wait, the, the fucking Brazilian knobhead. Yeah. <laughs> Vinicius. Correct. Yeah. And the Simulan are still up to one. But, Rory, we've got quite a few games to review in the Pram this weekend. I'm so excited for the Premier League weekend. Honestly, in researching for this weekend, I was like, oh, shit, it's that good. Oh, my God, I'm that good. Wow, this weekend's going to be amazing. So... The games we have are... Last night, during the Champions League action, Man City were playing their game in hand against Everton, which they won 3-1, and they are officially 10 points off second place. Yeah, it's over, guys. It's over. It is over. Yeah, so they've now won 17 competitive games in a row in all competitions. And up next is the tricky test... Of Arsenal. (laughs) So, this is the game we're going to kick off our weekend preview with. And Tommy, I'm, I was talking to the boys today on WhatsApp and I was like, I'm shitting myself about this game. And I was actually, as I sent the message, I was like, no, I'm not. I'm just resigned to defeat. I'm just, it's not even a, oh God, could we do it? We're not going to do anything. Every time we play City, they roll us over by three, four goals. Don't break a sweat. And then we go, Oh, plucky old Arsenal. We gave it a go, but we were dog shit, right? And the plucky old Arsenal is by far the most British thing you've said in 26 episodes of the podcast. Yeah, okay. Well, that was I'm going to aim to beat that at some point. Spiffing. There you go. That's before no one. Um, but... Before you break down the preview, let's just take it as a good Sunday of football and friendship. And whatever the results are, we'll accept them philosophically. Yeah, yeah, yeah. We could either be... Both of us ecstatic, one of us ecstatic, or both of us depressed. It's going to go... Although, like I've said, anyway, against City, I don't expect us to do anything. And, of course, because every time Aguero... Every time Aguero and De Bruyne are injured, their first games back are always against Arsenal. Like, always. It's always, oh, and De Bruyne will be back for the Arsenal game. Ah, for fuck's sake. So... I'm expecting nothing from this game. Man City are playing irresistible football. If a team is to do the quadruple, maybe this is the time, maybe this is the season that City can do it. For Arsenal, our only hope is we beat them in the FA Cup last year. So that is a one-off performance where we did them. It was very enjoyable, but I'm not holding my breath. Um, but if, if City win this, they can go 13 points clear, depending on how United do. And like the league now for them, I think they have to concentrate on winning the next three or four games, get a good cushion up, and then they can focus on the Champions League. Because once they've got a 15-point gap, which I think is definitely achievable, once they've got a 15-point gap, they can start 
kind of rotating teams and start putting all their effort into the Champions League. So maybe they can do it this year. Um, it's really important for Arsenal that they got that win over Leeds at the weekend because this is the start of a rough run for Arsenal. So, yeah, it will be an interesting Sunday. But before I get too depressed at the thought of it, let's move on to another big game. And we have one of the many derbies this weekend. We have the Liverpool derby. We have Liverpool versus Everton, the Merseyside derby. No one calls it the Liverpool derby. Sorry, the Merseyside derby. You. And, <laughs> <I'm joking. laughs> and again, this is a... Um, it could be a good time for Everton to face Liverpool. So I was researching their results. And the last time Everton beat Liverpool, Tommy, what year do you think it was? The last time? Oh, I remember um, when we watched Liverpool-Everton. You remember we were with Reed, and they checked the stat and they think that the last time they won it was in 2011, maybe? <sighs> so close, Thomas. Yeah, so 2010, far. the goal scored by Tim Cahill. And a certain Mikel Arteta. Um, yeah, exactly. It was that long ago. So that was the last time Everton beat Liverpool in the league. And I think this could be the best time for Everton to beat them again. But as we said, Liverpool won midweek. And maybe they'll have a bit more form coming into this. They'll have a bit more belief. I feel like psychologically for Everton, it's always a difficult game. And Liverpool do kind of roll into it thinking they're going to win. <laughs> I do think that this time Liverpool... I mean, we've you remember what happened in the first game of the season between Liverpool and Everton. Van Dijk got injured because of a Pickford mad exit mm-hmm. from the goal line but that happened i think that the liverpool players have a major ship on a uh, chip yeah, yeah. on their shoulder a major ship on their <laughs> shoulder not really but a major chip that they want to get rid of with a convincing win at everton and kind of dedicated to their boy virgil van dijk well exactly and they've both played midweek right so everton played midweek and were beaten by city liverpool played midweek but one so one's had a good midweek one's had a bad midweek so maybe they're Headspace will be slightly off. But yeah, I think this this one, this game will be overshadowed by what happened in the previous fixture to Van Dyke. I think there's going to be a lot of bite in this game. And as always, it will be a game definitely worth watching. But moving on from the Merseyside derby, we have a London derby, Tommy, and it's one of our favourites. It, it is West Ham. West Ham. West Ham versus Spurs. Now, this is going to be a good game. This is going to be an interesting game. This is West Ham, as we've talked about, are struggling with an attacking threat, right? With only one striker, they're kind of starting to see the creaks. But with a win, they could go up to fourth. And with Spurs, we are seeing a team that is starting to flounder a little bit, really kind of struggling. West Ham do have a good record against Spurs in general. They do tend to show up in these games. So I think this is going to be another game with plenty of bite, a lot of venom, all those cliches. But more importantly, I think there'll be a lot of goals. These games always produce goals. And Thomas, we are 100% behind you. West Ham, I think, will win this game. Uh, I don't want to say it because we have a reputation for jinxing things. But Tom, you know what I'm thinking Let's not forget that Rory Criscuolo has a 50 American dollar bet. Yeah. You want to break it down, Rory? So I have been tricked into, by my own self, into <laughs> placing a bet on who finishes higher, Arsenal or Spurs. Now, I said on Monday, amongst all the madness that took place on Monday, I said at some point, 
Arsenal will definitely finish above Spurs this year. I am going to stick with that statement and I'm going to take the 50 euros when it arrives. I'm pretty confident about it, honestly. I'm like really, really confident. I'm, I don't know why, because everything about supporting Arsenal should tell me I should not be put uh, confident. But I just, I feel like, I, I just feel like it's going to happen. I don't know. You know what we're going to do when there is the Derby Arsenal Tottenham? We're going to, we're going to have a, a, a live call with Max from Minneapolis and we're going to watch it all together. I think that could be fun. Let's do it. I can't fucking wait because we'll do them at our place. I don't care. I'll say it all. We'll do them. Let's do it. Right. But anyway, we're not talking about the North London derby. We're talking about West Ham Tottenham. It's going to be a great game. These are not the only cool fixtures. We got more coming in the prep, correct? Have you got space for any more, guys? Because we have the weirdest derby in the UK, Brighton versus Palace coming up. Um, these teams, I think we covered it in the pod earlier, maybe. They have a really weird reason for hating each other because their chants sounded the same or there was a player that annoyed another group of fans. These teams are basically like 65, mi- 65 miles away from each other, have no right to hate each other, but they fucking hate each other. Um, they're both Brighton play some really nice football, really good team to watch. Crystal Palace have looked a bit lost recently. People are starting to worry. worry. I've just developed his speech impediment. They're starting to worry about Roy Hodgson. I don't know, that was psychological or something. And if Crystal Palace should move on from him because things are starting to look a bit stale. But I think this could be an interesting game to watch. Ebere Eze is always worth watching. Tarek Lamptey. There's lots of promising young players in this game. So if you have some spare time this weekend, check out Brighton Palace. And then finally, we have a Midlands derby in Villa versus Leicester. And we're done. Nice. Also, I recommend following the Instagram page Seagulls Social by Brighton fans. They've got some spicy memes <laughs> and they are helping me get a better understanding of like the lower teams' rivalries. Like there was a meme the other day about Crystal Palace that I did not get at all and I had to go look up their history. And then I was like, oh my God, that is quite funny. So yeah. <laughs> When you have to work for a joke, it's worth it, right? Exactly. And let's break down Serie A because tomorrow on Friday, actually tonight, because you're listening to the pod on Friday. And if you're not, you're a loser. If you are, you're a winner. So uh, Congratulations. Tonight, well, what a great... What a great line. Tonight, we've got Fiorentina Spezia. Have we talked about Spezia enough? Yes, we have. Watch this game because Fiorentina are looking bad and Spezia are looking good. This is my preview of the game. No, but really, um, this will be an interesting one. And I think that if Spezia managed to win this game, it would be huge. They would have three consecutive wins in Serie A against Sassuolo, which we've thoroughly covered calling them the new Atalanta against AC Milan because they won 2-0 against AC Milan. And the third win would come against Inter, so it would be really, really huge. Fiorentina, on the other hand, they have only won one in five. They've lost their last two against Inter and Sampdoria, tied to Torino. And I think that they really need a win, but I have seen zero character coming from Florence this year. Well, Tommy, the big question is... Will Dragovsky subito on goal this weekend? So, Rory, this is an Italian sentence that Rory knows very well. His Italian might not be perfect, but he knows what Dragovsky a subito on goal means. Because... It, comes, it pops up on my on my home screen about three times a weekend, <laughs> and it is 
Dragovsky has conceded a goal in the 30th minute, the 5th minute, the 67th minute. Yeah. Imagine, imagine the six notifications when they played Naples at the oh, beginning of the year. That day. Rory's a starting goalkeeper in fantasy football is indeed Dragovsky. Man, I think he needs to get rid of that embarrassing beard because he used to be a decent goalkeeper. Well, the problem actually there is with Fiorentina's defense more than with him, but that beard is ridiculous. And on the same night, another kind of a dogfight between Cagliari and Torino. Cagliari, we talked about it on uh, on Monday. They've invested a lot of money on this squad. They've got Nainggolan. They've got Rugani on loan from Juventus. They've got a very good goalkeeper, Cragno. They've got Joao Pedro. I mean, Simeone. They've got a lot of talent, but the team is not working. They are in the drop zone at the moment with 15 points. Only three wins this season. Torino are two points above them. So this is really one of those first games that we see in the second half of the season, which could mean a lot for both teams involved. We move to Saturday when we have Lazio-Sampdoria. Interesting game. I recommend you watch it. Genoa Las Verona. Will Matteo Destro score yet again? Or will Federico Di Marco? Two players that we talk about quite often. And then another, uh, the first derby of the weekend, the Emilia-Romagna derby, Sassuolo versus Bologna. And on Sunday, we've got two big games. One at 3 p.m. and one at 6 p.m. At 3 p.m., the mighty Nerazzurri take on AC Milan. I'm very nervous about this game. This game would mean a lot. Any, I was talking about it with Rory before we started recording. Any outcome will make me so nervous. If we win the game, if Inter Milan win the game, I just don't trust Inter Milan with a big lead. If we draw the game, that would give points to AC Milan, and I don't like it. If we lose the game, AC Milan would still be top of the league. I do think that Inter Milan are getting to this game in better shape. Let's not forget that we've got only one competition left, so we played on Sunday, and right now we've got AC Milan, a full week's rest, a full week to prepare the game. AC Milan are playing tonight in Serbia, and uh, I think that they, it's, I mean, we were talking about them as the team that could not be beaten. They've lost two in the last five games. One against the Spezia is definitely not looking pretty. Um, AC Milan, I think they will need a very convincing performance, because by this point, Inter Milan as much as we've had problems this year, we know that we're playing with a 3-5-2. The players know each other very well. They know what they're doing all the time. Uh, AC Milan, they have a clear system, but at the same time, they, it, they have always, and correct me if I'm wrong, they've always given the feeling of being more passion than anything else. So they've, they've gotten a lot of penalties. Michael on the Monday, crazy on the crazy Monday night Twitch live, my friend Michael was saying that they have not won a game without a penalty only in one occasion. So we shall see that. So we shall see what Pioli draws up for this game. It's definitely going to be the big one. But then at 6 p.m. we also have Atalanta-Napoli. Let's not forget that Napoli, after a rocky period of the season, they have defeated uh, Juventus in a crucial game. And uh, Atalanta are currently looking pretty good as well. 
um, with two consecutive wins. But before that, there was a draw against Torino and um, a draw against Napoli as well in the Coppa Italia. So both teams, we know what they're capable of, but this is the final show-off and we'll see. It's also an interesting game if we look at the table because Atalanta is sixth at 40 points. Napoli is fifth at 40, but with a game in hand. So this year there is a big dogfight for those four Champions League spots. Roma is currently retaining the third spot, Juventus the fourth with one game in hand. But this game could say a lot about a team that could have a saying in next year's Champions League. And I think that's it, Rory. Exciting weekend ahead, Tommy. But before I let you go for the big interview, which is coming up, you put me on the spot for one of the Arsenal games recently, so I'm going to say, Tommy, prediction for the weekend, Derby, go. Oh my God, I hate to do this. You did it to me, so I'm doing it to you. All right. Um, I'm closing my eyes, and I'm picturing AC Milan 1, Inter Milan 4. 4? My God, you've gone big. I've said it. I've gone big. Okay, we'll take it. Listeners... Do with that what you will. But now <laughs> it is time. You should see Tommy's face now. He instant regret written all over his face. I'm like choking myself. <laughs> but now we have time for another great guest that we've managed to get onto the show. And it is, this guy is an author. He has coached a national team. He has set up leagues in different countries. He is doing charity work for football. He is highlighting big problems within the game. His name is Paul Watson. He wrote the book Up Pompeii, and he's coming up next. Listen to this guy. His life is fascinating. Can I say one last thing? Stankovic's team has just drawn 2-2 final score. Whoa, there we go. Welcome, listeners. We're here for the big interview this week, and we are joined by Paul Watson, who is an author of a book I read quite a while ago, and I've recently reread, called Up Pompeii, and he is a world traveler football fanatic. Paul, how are you today? You okay? Good, yeah, good. good. I'm glad this is a big interview. I'm, I'm um, you know... That's, that's that's flattering to me, to be honest. Well, it's it's always good to get off to a off to a good start, right? <laughs> so, there right. We go. I mean, world chat. You've really given me this huge interest. It can only be a disappointment from here. <laughs> nice. Okay. Well, <laughs> buckle up, listeners. Let's go. <laughs> All right. So, all right. So, Rory did say that the title of the book is Up Pompeii, but it's not really the title of the book. Paul, do you remember have all the <laughs> subtitle as well? Is it bad that I, I've been asked this before on the spot and I, I always forget the title of my own book, uh, the <laughs> subtitle, because basically it was called Up Pompeii and actually I didn't come up with that title. Uh, the publisher came up with it because it's a pun on a film that was around when I was sort of minus 30 or something. So yeah, yeah. I had no idea what it was. It, there's a film called Up Pompeii, you know, you know Pompeii. Um, uh, and so they called it Up Pompeii. But then I got to do the subtitle and rambled out this nonsense uh a quest to reclaim the soul of football by leading the world's ultimate underdogs to glory which nice. i think is a very over the top uh statement of what i did but <laughs> <laughs> yeah and it, it didn't quite quite fit in the instagram post that i've just made <laughs> no, the subtitle so long that it almost should be a chapter in itself i think really <laughs> But okay, let's start. Let's start from the roots. So, before going to Micronesia, Mongolia, and other weird countries, tell us a little bit about your childhood and how did you get into football as a kid? 
So I, I, I didn't really have any choice in that. I had an older brother um, who was four years older, still is four years older. And he um, basically told me from the age that I could walk, you're a football fan and you support Bristol City. And those two things were just there and, and I, they've never been challenged since. Um, but it, yeah, it just meant sort of growing up, um, football was just something that was in my blood from the from the very earliest age. And, um, and I guess became probably quite dangerously obsessive um, through that period of my life that ended up with uh, with the trip to Mongolia, uh, trip to Micronesia, first of all, and then the trip to Mongolia. Nice. So, Rory, do you want to start with a few questions about the about the book itself? Yeah, of course. So, this idea is such a like. It sounds like an idea that I, the kind of two mates come up with in the pub without sounding kind of disrespectful. If you know what I mean, like it's the 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 simplicity of it is its brilliance, right? Of going to this country out in the middle of nowhere and kind of giving them football. But how did the idea come up? How did you? How did the process start? Yeah, I mean, I think I would say that to people is that it is a conversation. I think oof, like a huge number of football fans have had the conversation and it comes about usually when your team is playing, uh, your national team plays a real minnow, like a, mm. an Andorra, um, a San Marino. You'll be in, in a pub watching that game and, you know, we, we all have come to be pretty wary about these qualifiers um, and you'll have the conversation, well, could we play for... Andorra you know not ever going to play for England but could we play for Andorra um and usually you know everyone has a few drinks you throw around a few thoughts about whether you could or not you all kind of know you couldn't because you know none of us have ever could play for a country that would lose only four or five nil to a team like England or Spain or Italy you know um and then it's forgotten but me and my my mate Matt had this conversation exactly this conversation when England played Andorra in 2007 I think it was or 2008 actually um and then we just took it to its very logical and illogical conclusion mm-hmm. of going down the entire FIFA rankings and working out whether we could play for any team um because obviously even though San Marino and in the past Andorra we're going back quite a while now um were always towards the bottom of the world rankings because they couldn't play anyone, you know, couldn't beat anyone because they were playing yeah. really high level teams. Um, there were also a lot worse teams than them um, because, you know, San Marino have to play Germany, um, whereas, you know, Turks and Caicos don't have to play Germany. So, you know, there was always this sense of, well, Europe isn't where you would go. Yeah. We just went all the way down the rankings and uh, and took it to its conclusion, which was that um, we got to Montserrat, who at the time were the worst team I think or, or maybe Bhutan were around that level and we were still finding players that were better than us like dis- dis- distinctly better than us um Montserrat had I think a 40 year old rule fox <laughs> ex-Spurs player still wow that's a name Bhutan. I've not heard in a while eh? I rule think fox, he might have been yeah. coaching by that point but whichever way we thought that in in a weird world where me and Matt pitch up to Montserrat's training camp right. we'll find out pretty fast that we are much worse than these players <laughs> so we got there and it was then that we found the non-FIFA rankings. We'd never heard of non-FIFA football. And that was the turning point. I think we turned this thing, one of the turning points that turned this from a stupid pub idea to something mm-hmm. that would dictate the next few years of our lives, I suppose. So how does it work? You get to the non-FIFA rankings and you keep digging and digging and digging. And if they're non-FIFA rankings, who is making them? Well, yeah. And, and that's the thing. At the time, non-FIFA football was a bit more of a mess than it is now. So it was very unclear who was making them. I mean, there was an organisation called the NF Board, the Nouvelle Federation Board, 
it's kind of a group of Belgians and French guys and um, they sort of had an organization for non-FIFA teams but it was all a bit a bit keyboard warrior-ish so th- these these tables we were looking at back in 20 what was it 2009 2008 um, they were kind of just someone had put it in Wikipedia but we were going down this table and we found at the very bottom um, this island Pompeii P-O-H-M-P-E-I clicked on it and it said that their last game was a 16-1 defeat to Guam and that on, on in the text it said they're widely considered to be the worst team in the world so we sent off an email <laughs> and said, you know, not can we play for your national team because that would feel ever so slightly um, forward. But we just said, you know, we'd love more information. Uh, and then the, the president of their FA at the time replied, which was kind of not expected and said, I've just moved to London. Otherwise, I'd love to help you. And, th- and that was the moment that changed the whole dynamic because he had moved from 9000 miles away on this island to uh, Walthamstow, which was about three miles away from us. And we met, met this guy, Charles Musana for um for a curry and said you know basically said very gently could we play for this team um and he said no you can't it it stopped existing you know we they kind of gave up a lot on football uh recently but you know if someone would go back and start coaching it then that would be great (laughs) and I think it was a rhetorical I don't think he thought we would (laughs) but uh but actually it took more of a shape because we were like well actually were we really going to travel the length of the world to play a game it's kind of not that's that's too much but to mm-hmm. coach your team seemed a bit more worthy you know it seemed like a more of a life plan so the big question is the alcohol rate in your blood so it starts from a pub and of course we've all had that conversation that player is so bad i could play in that team so at this point when you open up the map of because that's what i had to do to guam and pompeii at that moment i'm assuming you had recovered from the night out you were clear minded you were sober were you actually believing that somebody would respond to your email and that you would set off to micronesia on a plane no and i never expected anyone to reply to the email and then there were many stages throughout this process that i thought the, you know just the the idea was just pushed aside and we thought well that's that's done now but the fact it bounced back and it back was because you know I had a job I wasn't particularly enjoying I had very definitively realized I was not going to be a footballer in this country um but I still loved football and was slightly slipping between the the cracks where I didn't really want to play Sunday league football and get you know kicked to pieces every week on a muddy field you know it just wasn't quite me um but I also wasn't good enough to play at a proper, proper level. So I was kind of a bit stuck. Um, and then this moment when we met Charles, who said, you know, I've tried to help develop football there for 20 years. Would would someone go out and do it? Well, I was like, well, at the age of 25, job you don't like, you know, it's not, it, it didn't feel like a massive step at that point. Yeah, well, if you've, if you've not got like, many reasons to stay or if there's not a job holding you back then why not that's what your 20s are for right I think to go out and explore and have adventures and stuff but so let's move forward to the actual so first for one how do you get to Pompeii right how do you get there and then when you get there what is your first what were your first impressions of the island the people the lifestyle what how big a culture shock was it Uh, so you're getting there it's 20 25 hours of flying about 36 hours door to door um so you go we well, in those days we went uh london dubai dubai manila manila guam guam chuk chuk pompeii so it was a big old 
journey you know it's a big thing and um um and we went first off with Charles Musano. We, he, he went back with us to this guy. You know, he, he wanted to introduce us to everyone there who, who would be important in our football uh, journey. And you first get there, it's, I mean, it's the third, well, I don't know, it's around, it's in the, top, the most wet places on Earth. So it rains just huge amounts. It's also very hot all the time. So it's, it's this like tropical, uh, very, very green island, um, which in some ways is, is really it's like paradise you know there are aspects that are, that are incredible and beautiful um from football terms it's completely unworkable <laughs> you we got there and the pitch is flooded as it almost always was um to the point where a ball couldn't bounce at any time uh and the pitch is a toad habitat so there's toads hopping everywhere uh and there's only one goal net um and so yeah you get there and you immediately are like okay these things you look at on wikipedia and think ah, how bad can it be yeah, they can be quite difficult <laughs> to overcome. So so how do you overcome that kind of like when you get there and there's one goal and the field is unplayable, what do you what's your first step of like who do you call or is it just right that's we need to make goalposts ourselves? Like what is the what's the Um I think the, that kind of aspect wasn't the major consideration. So the first time we were thinking, look, is there the interest here? You know, are there players? Because there's no point just going out there and doing this for your own benefit. I mean yeah, yeah. um and eventually there were, like, there were, there were at first maybe 10, 15 players that would come down regularly and play. Um, and some of they were at very, very different stages. Some of them had trained, obviously, in the past under Charles and were really, you know, decent players. Mm-hmm. Some of them had never really played a formal game of football before. Um, so it was a real mix. Uh, and what we really focused on initially was just trying to get people to come and play. Uh, and what, what happened, I think, really was just that people would see this going on because the football field is actually a place people walk around for exercise. It's like walking okay. around the track because there was a running track around it. Sort of think about like an Italian 90 stadium. It's got a, <laughs> no, yeah, yeah, yeah. you know, it's got a rotten old um, running track that, that like rots in the rain and it's got yeah. these like big old stands. So what would happen is people walk around that running track for exercise on the island because there's not a lot of places to go for that. Um, and so people would see us playing football and then they would either come and play themselves or they'd tell someone else and word gets around very fast. So it did grow. Um, but the biggest thing that really started the process moving was first of all, meeting a guy called Dilshan who was Sri Lankan, but had lived in Pompeii like, you know, 15 years. He was only, oh, wow. uh, okay. he was in his early twenties or so, you know, he was, he'd lived there basically his whole, his whole adult life, his whole grown up life had been yeah, there. Yeah, yeah. Um, and he was a brilliant footballer and really passionate about it and was coaching some of the some of the kids. Meeting him and then sitting down with him and saying, We need a we need a league and putting together what we grandly named the Pompeii Premier League, which was <laughs> a basically a process of going to all kinds of organizations and saying, Can you put a team together? Whether it's the college, uh, there was a college team, there was also the Mormons, we tried to get the Mormons oh, nice. all calling a Mormon hut. Uh, that didn't work. But, you know, there were religious groups like the Seventh-day Adventists had a team. They were really quite good. Foul, <laughs> they were good. Um, and the International FC was just any foreign person on the island who could play, including myself. So we, we built this five-team league and that was the real launch pad because at first we had to teach the rules as we went along, but eventually then the players became the officials and then it, it really kick-started something. Um, so you didn't have referees for the games? No, I used to referee all the games at the start, even though I'm a terrible referee, but I used to referee the games. Um, and then we then had 
me with two linesmen who were Pompeian and then eventually one of those linesmen will become the referee for the net so we kind of trained up as we went along and over the course of this league uh it, it really did catch in that way and that by the end local people were really f- actually no one wanted to be a linesman because no one ever does but local people were happy to do the roles and confident enough and they would give each other stick like we we always would here but mm-hmm. there there was a sense that they could manage the games themselves which was obviously really important yeah. the only thing was we had to learn this the hard way everyone is always late for everything so you set a kickoff time for six o'clock both teams will turn up at seven so um nice but that kind of sounds similar to being in Italy. So I think that's not just a Pompeian thing. But... It's a stage beyond even it in that then we would set the kickoff time an hour earlier than we actually wanted them. And they catch on to that. So they start coming two hours late <laughs> and it just became this arms race. <laughs> <laughs> but it, yeah. So, you know, there was all these learning things, but basically this league set up and it just, it did just catch a, it just grew and grew and grew really. So ultimately, uh, without spoiling anything for anybody who would like to read the book, I repeat the title. It's Up Pompeii, a quest to reclaim the soul of football by leading the world's ultimate underdogs to glory. So it comes apart in the book where you kind of realize that the players need an ultimate motivation, right? They need to get out of their island and try to play international football, maybe. So how did that work, taking this team outside of the island for the first time, maybe for many of them in their life? Um, yeah, I mean, it was, it was a long process. So once we got, we, so we got the league playing and then we, we basically started training up the, the keenest and brightest players in, in separate training sessions. And we, we would make those more formal and they would be more, slightly more elite, elite geared training sessions. We did that for months and we had no target because we got to a point where, we could play Pompeii versus what we dubbed the Island All-Stars, but it was literally any other foreigner on the <laughs> island. Um, and they weren't getting any challenge anymore. So we needed a target. And so we, the only island or the only nation that was really accessible is Guam. And, and Guam is very much like the big brother of, of Micronesia. Um, and it's, it's um, heavily sort of, it's mostly been a US air base. Um, and it's very much the bright lights. They see it as a Las Vegas. But in football terms, it's also about 20 to 30 years ahead of where Micronesia is in that it's been in FIFA for a little while. It's getting FIFA assistance. Um, and, you know, it's got hundreds of thousands, hundreds of thousands of, pounds of, uh, of dollars a year. So it gets, you know, maybe three or $400,000 to Pompeii zero. So, you know, th- th- that was where we, we, we realised we had to get to Guam. Uh, but we also knew it was a real gamble. Um, and so we we basically, I think we pretty much cold called the Guam FA and said, look, Pompey's got a team again. We want to come and play. And they they were actually very responsive, really welcoming and said, you can come and play. Here are three of our club teams and a youth national team and, and come and come and play and you know stay with us. So that was kind of amazing. We just had to get the money from sponsors. Uh, and that was pretty tricky. Nice. What what sponsors did you were you able to to get in the end? Like the businesses, we got absolutely none in the end. The, the the thing that turned it was a guy called Larry Coyne, who's actually a friend of Matt's family, runs a cargo airline. He just loved this story so much. He was just like, "Well, if it's only that, I'll do it." <laughs> this was after like months of trying, months of emailing, cold calling, everything you think of. And to be fair, we also had to do like loads of on island fundraising for. Mm-hmm. 
for the other bits. So we did like car washes. We did whole days of washing cars and we made like $35. No. <laughs> but luckily, feel... yeah, so... we got there in the end. So sorry. So did you feel like the island really got behind it though? Once they saw what was happening, the people like the people got behind it and supported it and liked like they enjoyed seeing football back on the island, or was it a bit of a gradual kind of No, they did. And you know, everyone because it's such a small island and everyone's pretty much related, and everyone knew someone who was involved in some way. Um so no, it really did get the support. Uh, and once people knew the players were going abroad, that was a big deal. You know, a lot of the players had not left the island. Almost, almost all of them hadn't. And to go off the island to play sport is a really big thing. Yeah. So once it became real, it was a big switch when it was like, we are going to go on these dates. That was a big, big difference. Because I think a lot of people talk about doing things and then don't actually deliver. Mm-hmm. I think, I think <laughs> like that's a massive, massive cultural thing that if you're not, if you're actually saying, look, we will do this, it doesn't mean an awful lot to them. And that's fair enough. Mm-hmm. Um, so the moment that became a reality, yeah, it got pretty serious. <laughs> and, you know, we, we had a lot of people at the airport saying bye to us and stuff like that. And the weight of responsibility on us suddenly became huge because we didn't actually know for sure. We weren't just leading this team to demolition again. And then yeah, we're right, yeah. right back where we started, 16-1 defeat. And everyone comes back and doesn't really want to play again. So, yeah. Well, that must be quite a sobering moment when you see people like their like when you see their expectations and they're seeing you off like a World Cup team. That must be quite a sobering moment, I suppose. It was horror. I mean, honestly, it was some of the most soul searching moments. Where they, we got to Guam, got to their facility, which is like shiny and new, and mm-hmm. uh, got FIFA written all over it. And everything. <laughs> the picture isn't flooded; it's flat. You know, we're just like, Phew. and we knew this would be the case. You know, we we knew what we we're getting into. The, we're trying to project confidence around the players, but they're watching league games going on around them. And they're just, you know, they're in awe because they've never seen, you know, it's like four games going on at once. There's like people everywhere. It's like, oh, mm-hmm. God, what are we, what are we doing? And so obviously me and Matt coaching the team, we basically had to project all this confidence, send the players, you know, we luckily they stayed on, on, in the facility so that we could keep them under lock and key. <laughs> they, you know, 16 year old, 17 year olds who had never been off the island and they're on this like, Sin City Island of Guam uh, <laughs> kept on locking key to the very end. Um, but but you know we sent them off to bed and we just sat there and we were just like, oh, what have we done? Like what if what if we lose thirty nil? Like because in those days, especially just going back ten years, you couldn't watch footage. Like now I mm. could get probably a Guam second division game and stream it if I wanted to, and I'd yeah, have yeah, a yeah. fair idea. At that time, we were going on absolutely nothing to know what because we were so in isolation with our training and our games that we were just like, well, how do we know how we compare to a team in the Guam second division? We, we just don't know. So in, before we move on to the other very interesting chapters of your life, what do you think is the legacy that you left behind in Pompeii? Oh, it, I've got to say, it's one of the greatest sadnesses of my life. Um, in a way, I did leave, we did leave a legacy. And in a way, I would would have been so sad if I'd known when we left where they were now. So since we left, we left, our plan for leaving was basically, we need to leave. They need to become self-sufficient in what they're doing. So our players did basically learn to be the next generation of coaches. And they went back and they, they've done a great job of continuing. Um, a lot of them have now left the island to go to the US to study or for, you know, get on with their lives. But there are still our players on that island coaching kids, which is great. Um, but what never happened, which was something we had hoped we'd set in motion, was that the FA there would start to access funding from uh, Oceania Football. 
uh, which or, or Asia football, just someone. Um, and they've gone through a very tedious decade of being messed around by uh, Oceania and Asia Football Confederation. And uh, it's a little complicated because Pompeii is only one of the four islands that make up Micronesia, but they've they've gone in together to try and get funding and they're still getting nothing. So in a way, I'm really proud that football continues to be played. It, it is growing, if anything, but I'm incredibly sad that when I left, I never thought 10 years on they wouldn't be getting a single penny of funding from from anyone. It's it's just really tragic in, in its way. Can you think, you know, in the context of what these islands are, um, some of the highest obesity rates in the world, very limited opportunities for mm. children to sport. Um, and you've got the games governing body with billions to, to spend. And there's just no, there's nothing coming their way. Uh, there's really only just just sort of, problems you know they just present them with um administrative hurdles they can't get through basically well this is something i don't know if you saw the documentary last goal wins about the guys in american samoa where yeah, they go and out and yeah and they they're kind of facing the similar thing of like they're just desperately trying to get a coach trying to get balls trying to get equipment and fifa as you said like to splash their names all over these brand new buildings but they're also there is there is always more they could be doing for these nations that there is, it's funny, is it, it's funny these next goal wins is an amazing underdog story and it's a brilliant documentary I'd mm-hmm. say. um but it's funny how that to us is the giants i mean yeah well that's it as i said it i was like american samoa were actually like a fairly big island in terms of like islands i suppose like, i mean it's like they're struggling to get funding but yeah they still will be eligible for whatever it is um I don't know, 150 200,000 dollars a year and mm-hmm. when they do get a coach that coach will be on 50 60,000 dollars yeah and it's like yeah admittedly I, I really do think it's an amazing story but um what do you do if you're not even allowed that hurdle yeah. I think what's really interesting is you see places like the Cook Islands and when the Cook Islands first started playing senior matches they lost 30 nil 30 I don't know they got absolutely demolished um but now they're competitive in the region yeah. and it's just that if you give people a chance give them some funding, give them a, avenues to, to go down that they can get there. There's, there's, mm-hmm. no, there's no mystery to it. Um, yeah, it, it really is as simple as that. Like, of course, at the moment, if a Micronesia team played any FIFA nation, they would lose maybe 30 or 40 mil. But yeah, yeah. how would they not? I mean... Yeah, 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 yeah. Like, you can't expect much more. But I think this is, like, maybe with the, like, Nations League, as they have, like, the smaller nations playing each other to kind of create competitiveness. Maybe this is something that could be looked into in other continents as well, if you know what I mean. Because especially if you go to Oceania, the gulf between Australia, New Zealand and everybody else is like huge. Yeah, I mean, <laughs> since Australia left, I mean, I'm glad in a way they left for competitive. Yeah. And then I think New Zealand obviously is a massive step above in terms of so many things. But um, I think it's really just there needs to be more competition for the second tier Oceanian nations. Yeah, You know, it's not just... Micronesia Federated States Micronesia you've got Kiribati and Tuvalu are struggling mm-hmm. to get recognition from OFC and even if they do now have associate membership how are they going to afford to get teams to the competitions it's very unlikely they'll get funding yeah. for that so it's 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 this thing of like okay granted Micronesia is never going to be a powerhouse of football it's never <laughs> going to be a World Cup qualifier but it's something really boils my blood about not even giving people a level playing field in any regard yeah and yeah sort of saying well you know 
they're, they're not doing enough to justify it. It's like such mm-hmm. a catch-22. If you put some funding in and gave a coach to, to Micronesia and gave some structure, they would thrive and then they yeah, would yeah, get yeah. more. But yeah. until you've got that, how do you expect a nation like that to really build it? It's really tough. Nice. So then there is another chapter that always starts with an M, but it's Mongolia. And do you think, so you, I, I read some things about you online. You describe yourself as a technical nerd. Correct me if I'm wrong. You've got a FA emergency medical training, correct? <laughs> I don't I, even know if I do. I've got, <laughs> I've got an FA level two, like uh, coaching website. <laughs> Sorry? But, so I found this information on the FIFA website. It says that you have an FA emergency medical training. I'm not even sure I'm on the FIFA website, right? <laughs> There's an article about you, buddy. That's interesting. No, I mean, I'm an FA level two coach, which is basically like a very bog standard level. I'm sending the link to you on the chat right now. I mean, it will. Yeah, it, I have done a, you know, you have to do like first aid in that and stuff. But yeah, I, I wouldn't say, I didn't know I was on any website with that, but. Right, but then they called you from Mongolia to go coach a football team in Ulaanbaatar. Correct me if I'm wrong. The name of the capital that I probably yeah. mispronounced. Yeah, in Ulaanbaatar. Yeah. And how was receiving that phone call? Um, well, uh, it was a bit of a shock again. Um, I mean, after after Micronesia, not an awful lot happened basically because um, you know it's not easy to use that to leverage to get other jobs, um, but. When Mon- when I was approached kind of out of the blue from Mongolia, it was basically because a guy called Enki Batsumba was setting up a had set up actually a breakaway league in Mongolia um, because the official league at the time was really ridden with match fixing. And what he wanted was a foreign coach to come in and set up a sort of flagship team uh, you, that was really focused on developing young talent because most of the teams just brought in players and then, you know, like brought in foreigners and then they would win the league and then the players would go so when he approached me and explained this this vision and this idea I just was really intrigued by it it wasn't like I was batting off offers from other teams so I just kind of just kind of felt like this could be something I would want to get involved in and, and took it on nice so when was this exactly what what year do you remember 2013 that would have been October 2013 all right so you just packed and left for Mongolia at this point what what was your family asking you like you go to Micronesia first and then you go to Mongolia yeah why don't you take it, it away and just chill next to us right I mean my girlfriend who who's now my wife was was very supportive in the whole process um but it was like I think it was again a sense of like well there isn't this is something I'm really passionate about and there weren't really opportunities presenting themselves in this country at the, you know at the time um and yeah I think I think you know it was it was a sort of take it as as it comes process so I, yeah I, I flew off to Lambato in that October and it was it was not a lot of stuff was up in the air the, the club that had just been set up had seemingly had a sponsor but it, it was a new club so everything was a bit vague and sure enough, when I got there, the uh, sponsor had pulled out. <laughs> it pulled out as I was midair, basically. So I got my flight paid for, arrived and was told sponsors pulled out. And we had to rebuild everything from the ground up, basically. We we um, we had just a name. We literally just had a name for the club, which was Biangol, which is a region of the capital. Um, and actually, the great thing, I got there and met Enki, who was the guy who'd approached me. And he said, you know, things are not as they should be. This is bad. And said, but I've got a solution. I'm going to walk into a TV company's offices and we're going to sell a reality TV show 
where you built the nice. team. Perfect. But I was like, have you ever been? I, I'd, I'd been on the end of pitch meetings in the UK. It takes six months to even get a meeting. And then when you get one, it takes another six months to get a second one. I was like, what? and sure enough, he was like, nah, be fine. Without even a piece of paper in his hand, he just walked into the biggest TV channel in Mongolia, got a meeting with the head of development, like parading me like a sort of badge, I guess, just here's a foreign guy. <laughs> um, and sure enough, we did get them to sponsor us within, I guess, within about 10 days. They decided they would sponsor it as long as we promoted this soft drink that was linked to the TV channel and was to all intents and purposes undrinkable. But, you know, we were willing to do what it took and I was willing to drink litres of fruit if that was what it took to What, fla- what flavour was this drink? What, what? It was all, we had several flavours. that it was, oh, yeah. I remember it being red it was sort of impossible to say what it was really it was red uh and uh, i had to drink it on the camera when it was so we did this reality tv show kids came from all over the country kids came from the, the desert to come and try and yeah, be on this yeah. team um and most of what i had to do was drink this drink on camera and i just basically my task was not to wince as i drank it <laughs> but it was it was the craziest show ever because the producers of the show couldn't speak english and i couldn't speak mongolian so i would just ramble in english until someone told me to stop and nobody knew if it what i was talking about um and then we'd do these challenges that the producers had come up with and they were basically all just dribbling around cones so you okay. know it was any good because you just dribble around eight cones and they'd be like oh he's a good one like, yeah but he just dribbled around eight cones. I don't know if he's actually any good. And then they would have a game at the end. And that was basically the only thing that mattered. I'd just watch this game at the end and be like, okay, actually he looks quite good. And, and we'd choose, we chose 20 players or 20 something players to, to eventually be our squad. But it was absolute carnage. I mean, also it was about minus 20 at the time. So everything had to be done indoors. I was about and, to say October in Mongolia can't be much fun, right? Yeah, like... bad. When I first got there, I said, look, can't we just do all these trials outside? Because I didn't really know. Mm. Um, and it was only about, four degrees at the time look fine yeah, yeah. Uh, and Enki just looked at me and said yeah but you're talking in three weeks time you're not worried the players might die and I was like what he's <laughs> like well, hypothermia looked at the forecast I was like, oh it's gonna go to minus eight minus ten yeah so it was all indoors mm-hmm. and so we're trying to judge the abilities of these players by them dribbling around cones and then playing basically a form of futsal uh, <laughs> football indoors there's <laughs> a miracle we ever got a team out of it at all really so you said it was a breakaway league so how many teams eventually made up this league and was it all Ulaanbaatar based or was it from kind of wider Mongolia or yeah this league was all Ulaanbaatar based um okay. and it was I think it was about 20 teams in the end the interesting thing was so we it went through a few twists and turns but basically this league uh, only ran for a couple of seasons because the whole Mongolian Football Federation actually fell apart um, because of corruption. So someone was done for it. The president was done for it. And with that, everyone was out. They just all left panicking that they were going to be um, prosecuted too. So the, the federation actually had a whole upheaval. And it is much better now. It's much better run. Uh, it has its problems, but it, it it's like a, a definitely a better organisation. So we actually brought our team and joined the other league, the, the official league, and then that was the only league. And joined, we had to start from the very bottom, which was the effectively the third division, which is a cup competition, effectively. Um, the Amateur National Cup, which we won. And then we went up to the second division. Uh, and then in the second division, we ended up getting into the playoffs. Um, in the playoff final, so all games in Mongolia are played basically in one stadium, the national stadium. Very few teams have their own stadiums. Maybe a couple of others do 
uh, like Urchin, the, the old champions did, um, and a couple of teams that don't aren't in Ulaanbaatar have their own stadiums. Mm-hmm. But basically, everything's played in the same stadium for this tournament. Um, and then there was a home leg and an away leg. So at the end of this second leg, um, it finished and we were level on aggregate. Uh, and everyone sort of just stood there. And then both teams started celebrating. And there was this moment where we couldn't, no one, we all thought that we'd, we'd scored more away goals because we didn't know which leg was which. <laughs> so no, no team knew. And in the end, it turned out we'd lost. Um, oh. And we thought this was terrible uh, at the time, but because we'd missed out on promotion to the Mongolian Premier League. But actually, what then happened was the team, not the team that had beaten us, but the team that had been promoted automatically, refused their place in the Premier League. Um, and we were told, you have to take it or you actually get relegated. <laughs> wow. <That's>... Um, <laughs> right. Which I still don't totally know how they came up with that rule, but I think we just worried no one was going to take this place. And so we did take it. And what we didn't realise was that was basically the key to our uh, unravelling. And the reason why people don't want to be in the Mongolian Premier League is because um, you're suddenly in a league where some of the teams have huge amounts of money. I mean, by Mongolian standards, have right. huge amounts of money. Um, and they're bringing in all these foreigners who are, really talented and mm-hmm. our whole model was homegrown young talent and we were going to get absolutely destroyed week in week out um and we we kind of had bargained on having another season in that second division to build okay yeah. um and we yeah we were suddenly thrust into this absolute chaos <laughs> so, so how do you how do you make that step up knowing that you're going to be kind of out weighed financially and did you find enough like young talent there to be optimistic and be like you know with a few years this could be a kind of a big project or it was tough so a lot of things happened uh first of all we brought in a British coach a guy mm-hmm. called Shadab Iftikhar uh, brilliant coach uh, from Preston we phoned him where well, he was in he says he was in Asda one minute uh and he was in Ulaanbaatar the next so the problem was we had two young Mongolian coaches and that was our plan to bring them up um the rule is once you're in the top division in Mongolia, they have to have a certain license. I think it was a, probably equivalent of an A license and he, they didn't have it, these young coaches. So we had, suddenly were told you have to have a coach with this license or you, you can't start the season. Um, so we had to recruit a foreign coach because nobody in Mongolia had that license at the time who wasn't already attached to a club. So we looked abroad and found this guy, Stab, who's amazing. He'd been an assistant to Roberto Martinez um, and still is, in fact, in, in Belgium. He's one of his, um, on his technical team. But like an amazing coach who'd really struggled to get opportunities basically because of racism in the UK. Um, he's got, you know, he's British, Pakistani. Um, he has a beard and he is a Muslim and those things, sadly, are still prohibitive to getting a job in football, which is terrible. But that is a reality. A job, a guy with his qualifications would be coaching easily at a good level in the UK if, if he wasn't called Shadab Iftikhar. Um, if he was called Michael Smith, he'd be, a, you know, in League Two by now. Um, so that was, we had this opportunity to give him a job and we were getting something that we no way should have had a coach this good. And he was delighted by the opportunity. So we were like, he came and he said that the negotiation was the funniest one ever because we quoted a terrible wage because that was all we had. And he said, okay, can you do more? And we said, no. He said, all right. <laughs> and that was it. He came over. So we had this coach and he's a brilliant coach. But we had no we had no way of competing at that level. Absolutely none. And we may have had a better chance, but we got slightly pulled apart by the fact our budget got decimated because we ended up signing 
two Nigerian players who we signed because they'd been victims of effectively trafficking and we signed them to look after them, make sure they got home. They couldn't play for us. We knew that. So uh, that basically blew our budget up, but I, st- I still stand by it. But it was it was a thing we had to do. Um, it's very prevalent in Mongolia's. We, we learned from these two kids, these two Nigerian kids, that um, they've been signed by quite big clubs who say that we'll we'll look after your visa, and then the clubs don't get their visa sorted properly, so they're only legally in the country for two months. Then they tell them after two or three months, you're now an illegal immigrant. And we're going to pay you less because we're going to look after you, make sure you don't get um, arrested. Um, and then the club keeps taking the money down, but the players still keep playing because they have no other option. Um, and these players had refused and just said, no, we won't do this anymore. So they were effectively homeless. The club reported them to the FA as illegal immigrants, so they couldn't play for any other club. And we found them on a park bench in in, um, in the centre of Ulaanbaatar uh, and put them in a house and had them in our training sessions, but we knew they could never play for us. Um, and then we eventually spent basically the last of our transfer budget on paying a bribe to get them out of the country uh, so they could get home. Wow. That's like, and that is such a, like, when you say you stand by that decision, yes, you should stand by that decision 100%. But so this, this human track. So when you talked about the, the corruption within the league, I assume a big part of it was this kind of in quotes, human trafficking was a big part of the corruption that was involved as well. And it's, it's, I assume it's not only within Mongolia, but more that area of the world in general, right? Yeah. I mean, there's loads of it around. Um, I can't really speak for how common it is. And I I think things probably are being done to try Mm -hmm. and this is a few years back now, but it's a really common practice and it's, it's really awful it's just it's just dreadful i i think it's done in different ways and i think the way they operated with these guys was was very clever because it it basically created a scenario where they their only option was to turn themselves into the authorities which is a terrifying thing to do in a country you don't know where you you know i think they they could have gone to prison according to the law there and and you know no one's likely to do that or try and contact their families back home who are very poor you know from very poor part of lagos try and get them to summon the money to to pay their fine and get them back out which in itself would have been a massive task but also the shame that would have brought upon them given that their whole thing when they left was you know i'm gonna make something of myself you know that was why they left nigeria you know to make their families proud to 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 sort of make their their money so yeah it's very insidious And and you hear about things like you hear about other methodologies like where uh a person will say I've got your flight tickets and actually accompany a player to somewhere where they have a contract, then remove their passport, take their wages and effectively have them, you know, it's effectively slave labour. So you hear about very different methodologies, but it's it's rife in football. And Central Asia is is very bad. I think Laos and Cambodia, again, you get these these situations developed very easily. And right now you told us you're actually working at a project to prevent player trafficking from happening. Can you tell our listeners a bit more about this? Yes, I set up something, just just set up something with um, a friend of mine, uh, Dominic Stevenson, and um, we set up a project based along these lines. Um, it's sort of similar. So we're setting up something called um, Society for Protection of Footballers International. And the idea is we're going to give out fact sheets and to be distributed to players in um countries that are susceptible to to player trafficking to player abuse to be given to young kids who may be the victims that 
just give them a few pieces of advice you know in the in the local language wherever that is it'll be translated into you know whether it's french or arabic or english or whatever um to just hopefully equip players with a knowledge of of what can happen um because you know there's many 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 routes in why trafficking happens and why it works and and you know there's many 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 problems there but if you can equip players with just a little bit more knowledge it might at least help one or two of them not not go down that road which you know it can it can destroy lives and it's 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 such a big problem and nothing's really being done by it about it as far as i can see and we still have yeah by the way yeah this is awesome that you're doing this honestly before we started this zoom call i had never thought about like tr- player trafficking like human trafficking in football was something that i had never really stopped to think about i something i've always ignored i didn't i don't know i've read very nothing actually about it so very interesting. There is actually another very interesting thing that we want to talk about in your past. But since we're at the present, you just told us about your very interesting project to prevent human tra- uh, player trafficking. What is this other project that you have called K- Kitmas, correct? Yeah, so Kitmas was um, we just stumbled upon it, really. So I have, yeah, I give a lot, I send a lot of kit around uh, to different places to projects that um, need need football shirts or football boots. I send it around all over the, the, the world, really. Um, towards the end of last year, I had about 15 really nice, pristine, brand new football shirts, but nowhere with them uh, for them to go. And so I came up with the idea that because of the situation we were in economically, a lot of families were struggling. It was getting towards Christmas and said, you know, what if we found families who may not be able to afford to buy presents for their children and gave these shirts away? And then I thought, well, what if we could get to 100 shirts? And so started putting the, the kind of call out and it it just went crazy you know the amount of support we had we ended up getting 950 football shirts that distributed around uh 14 different centers you know uh community centers effectively that work with um families in the uk and and so yeah we we end up giving just a load of shirts away that, that could be given to children for christmas and um it was really nice you know it's, it's amazing how this community can rally around i think you you really see the best of people through football as well as, you know, people always talk about the bad and I've, obviously I've spoken about the bad with trafficking, but there's also an awful lot of good that, you know, normal people do through football, I think. No, I think, well, and, and it's great that you've, you've seen both sides of it. And as we're going to look at the positive, what is, what is the biggest positive you take from your time in Mongolia? And what did you think, what did you think about living in Central Asia? Because as I think I mentioned before, we recorded that I lived in Kazakhstan myself. How did you find life in Central Asia? And what's the biggest positive you take from that? No, the biggest positive for me were the kids that we, the kids that we worked with, the kids that we had as our players were fantastic players. But more than that, they were just fantastic people. They were so welcoming, kind um, and humble. And, and, you know, they were lovely people. And it wasn't always easy because of the language barrier. And English isn't widely spoken. When I tried to learn Mongolian, it went so badly that one of the players said I sounded like a dog. So um, I did struggle with the language barrier. It was it was a battle. Um, but I really did love working with those players. Um, I didn't find Mongolia an easy place to live. I think partly it was obviously the, the temperature is it's difficult in winter. Um, partly it's the language barrier. And as I said, I really did try and learn Mongolian and, and struggle quite badly with it. Um, and I think it's Ulaanbaatar is a very tough place. People have a vision of Mongolia as the steppe, you know, this beautiful wilderness and nature. And actually the reality is 
Ulaanbaatar is hugely overpopulated. It, you're sitting in traffic for hours on end trying to get anywhere and there's fumes and smog and it, it's not an easy place for a foreigner to live, I think. So, yeah, my, my experience of, of the region was not, not, not like totally negative but I did find it a difficult place to live I've got to I've got to say and that and this is after what uh three years I guess of being in and out of there yeah no I, I kind of felt my my experience in Almaty was was similar to that it was the smog was ridiculous the city was um beautiful but yeah if you went down the wrong street it got very not beautiful very quickly if you know what I mean. <laughs> um, but no that's like Central Asia since living there I've always I'm a bit more obsessed about it now. I find it such an interesting part of the world because as we said before, nobody really talks about it. Nobody really knows much about it. It's kind of sat between these two continents. So I think it's quite an interesting place to be. But yeah, difficult place to live, I think. Yeah, definitely. And um, Paul, in 2018, you were also the official organizer of the 2018 Kunifa World Cup, correct? Yeah, I was. I was. Yes. No, World Football Cup. <laughs> we called it World Cup. We got sued. So World Football Cup. Uh, World Football Cup. Okay. We don't want to be sued either. So why don't you tell our listeners what this... I, I had actually heard about this competition because there is a team that takes part in it that is actually Italian, Padania. Yeah. Uh, <laughs> it's a tricky one, right? <laughs> it's a tricky one, right? So... Tell our listeners what it is about, and then we have a few questions just about the, the squads that actually participate, and then we will let you go, promised. Sure, sure, sure. So it's uh, the idea of CNIFA, um, Confederation of Independent Football Associations, is it's to represent nation states and peoples that don't fit into FIFA's model. So like the best example of that probably is the easiest one is for people to understand is Tibet, probably. So if you're Tibetan, your options through the FIFA system don't exist you have to play for China, which is clearly not going to work. So what actually happens is I think a lot of the time the FIFA model leaves out people from either oppressed minorities or people who have a very strong regional identity or linguistic identity. It's very hard to express that. So CONIF is just a different model of expressing identity through football. And it was something I really wanted to be part of. So I, yeah, I basically took on the responsibility as one of the lead organizers, uh, lead organizers for the tournament in London in 2018 um yeah which was an amazing experience i'm still very proud of that nice so uh, is it difficult to organize an international tournament <laughs> yeah we were we were at, the whole way we were just you know under resourced and and also you know because of the nature of the teams we were getting threats and we were getting you know people trying to stop the thing happening because of the political sensibilities obviously anything there was always a risk of chinese intervention which actually didn't happen but it was a very big threat because Tibet were one of the teams that, you know, there could be implications, um, visa problems. It was, oh, it was a lot of pressure and we were always on the edge financially with it. So, yeah, it was, it was stressful, I think. So we kind of mentioned the two teams that took part in the World Cup that you organized in the, what did you call it again? The, it's not World Cup. It's World Football Cup, yeah. World Football <laughs> Cup. Yeah, sorry. Uh, we talked about Padania. Padania is a fictional region in northern Italy that would actually wanted to become independent from southern Italy. There are no racial tensions. There has been no war. Well, then you talk about a country like 
a place like Tibet that has definitely seen different hardships. So are the, all the teams like respectful to each other? Uh, do they, like the Padanian players, do they understand that there are actually people that are not making up a big joke and they're there to represent their identity? Yeah, now it's really interesting you mentioned that. So yes, basically, I never personally had a problem with the fact there's a broad scope in there. So I think what you don't want to do is say, this is a thing for people who have been oppressed and all of you go together because you're oppressed peoples. I think there's something almost counterproductive in that you're setting people as victims and you're saying here you go you know here's a group so I never had a problem with there being quite a wide range of you know there being more regional identity rather than we're all persecuted peoples and and actually the teams got on very well and related to each other through that so I never minded that I did if I'm totally honest I had issues with Padania because having been someone who had studied Italian who had lived in Verona um I I certainly saw the connotations with, with Lega Nord and Padania. I, I was nervous about Padania. And also Padania don't technically meet Conifa's criteria. They're in there because they got in before the criteria was set. So Padania was always an odd one for me because if I'm totally honest, I, I don't work for Conifa anymore. Um, so I can be honest. Um, I struggled to to be excited about having them in our tournament. <laughs> Whereas I would happily shout from the rooftops about Matabeleland and Tuvalu and Tibet. I found it a little hard with Padania. Yeah, it's, a, it's, it's got a very strong political connotation. And at the end of the day, uh, even people who supported like the idea of Padania, they didn't take themselves too seriously. It was kind of like a F you to Southern Italy. Yeah, and yeah. when I saw the teams that were competing... I was like, Padania, they are the, the, the odd ones out in here. It, it somewhat undermined us uh, with anyone Italian, with anyone who really dug into the stories. I felt it undermined us a little bit because uh, I could do nothing about this. You know, I was just organizing the tournament. The teams was, were qualified separately. I couldn't personally intervene. But any time we had to discuss the teams in the tournament and Padania were mentioned, okay, the team themselves were, were not actively trying to promote a political agenda but it's very very hard to detach the term padania from a politics that i don't personally feel has any place in in football or certainly not progressive football you know it, it felt very out of tune with the rest of the competition and and yet that wasn't my place to intervene um at the time but but they i mean they're very good footballers uh for that <laughs> level but i did not have any great love for them in the competition if let's I say that in Padania they definitely have the resources to go training at a football pitch and all that but I'm going to ask you my last question personally um, so you lived you lived different aspects of the game throughout your life you were a coach but you also helped setting a team up then you organized an international tournament at the end of the day Right now, you're doing these beautiful things that you said against player trafficking, the Kitmas idea that I think is beautiful. So at the end of the day, it's a very loaded question. But what is football to you? For me, for me football is basically, most of the time, it's, it's identity. And it's allowing people to have access to expressing their identity for it. It's, there's, a, there's, there's this huge idea that it's always put around that football's for everyone and it, it should be for everyone. But the reality is 
an awful lot of people for one reason or another are frozen out of football or don't have a way to express what they want to through football and I think for me it was always about trying to say to people well you should have the opportunity to express yourself through it and in the way that you wish and and you know saying to people your your identity matters it doesn't doesn't matter to me whether your identity is being Tibetan or you you know your identity is being Italian or it doesn't matter but you should have the right to speak it through football and I think a lot of what I what I'm passionate about is is that it's the the leveling of the playing field because it looks level to the naked eye and FIFA will definitely shout about how level it is but it it really isn't that's beautiful Paul thank you that was a really really interesting chat I really enjoyed it but just a quick question before we let you go where is next on your adventures when we can travel and when we're allowed to leave our houses again? Where would you want to go next? I've got to go to Bangladesh for the um, Rohingya FA Cup. I tried to help set that competition up just before COVID kicked in. Uh, yes. Big club tournament for teams in the Rohingya refugee camps in Kutubalong. Really want to make it happen. But we've just been frozen by COVID, which, which really brilliantly has not been a big problem in the camps like they've not seen the devastating effect we worry oh, wow. okay but i still you know as a as an external person and as an organization that is providing funding we can't encourage football even though it is still going on in the camps we mm-hmm. can't be here to say so yeah it's been put on hold this tournament that was supposed to happen in march 2020 uh, and all the funds is ready all the funds are ready everything's ready to go but we're waiting for covid so as soon as that's over i would love to go and watch this tournament as soon as it's safe for that to happen and responsible for that to happen. That sounds great. If it when it happens, you need to let us know and we can do a little episode on it, or we can we can yeah, we'll do an episode on it definitely. But Paul, thank you. If people want to follow you on Twitter, what is your Twitter handle? It is Paul underscore C underscore Watson. Beautiful. And if you're interested in reading the book, it's called Up Pompeii. I can't remember the subtitle. I apologize. It is available on Amazon to buy. Thank you, Paul. That was great. Thanks for coming on. Lovely. Thanks, guys. I better run and put my little boy to bed. But thank you. Thanks so much. Beautiful. Well, Tommy, I think that was a fascinating chat, right? I think there was a few topics we covered there that I really didn't expect to come up in the podcast. Um, a super interesting guy, super chill. Um, we had a, just as long of a conversation almost before we started mm-hmm. recording. Very down to earth. Um, we talked about social media with him, which was very funny. Um, and uh, yeah, just an overall great guy. Very interesting story. And uh, the player trafficking thing is something that I was extremely unaware about. And when I think about it, it's like you're playing even more than playing with the person only that is already despicable. You're kind mm-hmm. of fucking with the person's dreams. And uh, I think that yeah. that is a, is a level of just meanness that is kind of exaggerated. But uh, yeah, interesting. Definitely follow the guy on Twitter. Follow all the work that he's been doing because it's very, very interesting. And guess who is in dire straits with guessing the mysterious player? That's me. We're going to see how Tommy does now. So for the listener, we will recap the clues. So the club he has spent the shortest amount of time at is Kaiserslautern, the once great Kaiserslautern. Um He has 98 caps, so close to 100 for his country with 42 goals. 
159 career goals in total. And he has played with Roy Mackay, Cloud Makalele, and Ricardo Quaresma. Now, me and Tommy have talked backstage, and Deportivo was not a clue. So Tommy is still going to get three questions. Deportivo is not a clue. Okay, so did I play at Chelsea? Yes, I did. No, did you? Ah, no, did you? Yes, I did. Yeah, correct. Um, Okay, did you play at Chelsea? Yes. Are you a striker? No. Jesus. Okay, and last question. Am I Europe? Are you European? Yes, I am. Okay, so Kaiser is Lauten. I really don't know this team. Um, I'm assuming they are German, given the name. Yeah, Rory's nodding. Thank you. I'm assuming they are German. I want to think this is the... F- oh, I'm not have it. Um, this is the first team that he played for. I'm thinking of German players that have played at Chelsea, and the only one that I can think of is Balak. I wouldn't know when Balak played with... Quaresma, let me think about it. Quaresma, weird career. I kind of lost track of him after he left Inter Milan. He won the Champions League at Inter Milan. Um, That's mental. Yeah. That's That's like how Arnautovic did as well, right? Technically. Yeah, yeah, yeah. 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 Actually, I think Arnautovic played more minutes than Quaresma, but it's ridiculous, but I think he did. Marco Arnautovic, (laughs) huge shout out. Great guy. But I'm... um, I don't know. I well, I have three chances. The first one is going to be: Am I Michael Balak? Yes, you are, Michael Balak. Yeah, man. I thought Quaresma was going to throw you out. You know, he played with him at Chelsea. At Chelsea, Quaresma. Yeah, Quaresma was like on there for like a year. Yeah, yeah. yeah. What was Mourinho that brought him there? I I'm guessing so. They only played five games together, though. I was checking on transfer mark, so I don't think Quaresma was like prolific while he was there. But this was the only German that I could think of that played. I know. Yeah, the second you were like, "Is it Chelsea?" I was like, "Fuck!" They've not had any other Germans beyond Werner play for them, so I don't think like right. Yeah, so, yeah. And what kind of team is Kaiser Slautern? Man, they used to be really good. They were like Bundesliga, and now they're like third league. Like they used to be really, really good. Like really good. Okay, but walk me through. Where did he play with McKay? And who? who so he played with Roy McKay at Bayern Munich. Um, now, Roy McKay, I, I feel like people forget how good this guy was. And, and we're going to take a few minutes just to appreciate Roy McKay, right? Yeah, who cares about Balak? No, no, no. Because I feel like this guy is so forgotten. And his goal record at one point was ridiculous. So... At Deportivo, he got 79 goals in 133 games. At Bayern Munich, 78 goals in 129 games. Like, the guy in in his career, 526 appearances, 256 goals. This guy was lethal. But anyway. Where is he from? He's from Holland. Mackay? Mackay. M-A-K-A-A-Y. He played for Holland 43 times, only scoring six goals. That was quite disappointing, I suppose. But anyway, Michael Balak. So he started his career at Chemnitzer FC, um, where he was at Kaiserslautern for two years. Then he went to Bayer Leverkusen for two years, three years. Then at Bayern Munich for four years, Chelsea for four years, and then back to Bayer Leverkusen. 
there is one thing that I think of when the name Michael Ballack pops in my head. You know what it is? Well, sorry. That return leg versus Barcelona at Stamford Bridge with the referee not allowing anything going at Chelsea's yeah, that, 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 that refereeing performance is absolutely woeful. Like Overebo from Norway. And at a point, he doesn't whistle when there is a clear mm. penalty and you see Michael Ballack dog face just turns around and starts chasing. it's one of those games that makes you think oh maybe match fixing is a thing yeah. <laughs> like maybe that one, it is that one. you all remember the Iniesta goal that sealed that yeah, game yeah, Chelsea yeah. were on one and Michael Ballack chasing the ref is something I will never forget just like Didier Drogba at the end grabbing the camera fucking and screaming, disgraceful fucking yeah. disgrace. it's a disgrace and that was huge. I was but also happy. just before, so we don't end on a sour note. We also need to shout out that Michael Ballack, forty-two goals in ninety-eight caps, is mental for a midfielder. <laughs> that is, he was a strange type of midfielder. He was a very offensive, like kind mm. of winger midfielder. He could play multiple positions. He was. I remember he was one of the first players that, like, when Chelsea signed him, I was like, oh, fuck, they're getting a proper player here. Like, yeah. he is a proper player but yes round of applause for michael balak round of applause for tommy yes and guys we're at the before rory says sends you off i will say goodbye to you telling you that it's always a pleasure to record this podcast for you and next week we are going to cover the turkish league for the first time in our lifetime we're going off to istanbul where the title race is looking close af but For this week, guys, we are finished. And our quote of the week is going to come from John McGinn in an argument with Sean Dyche, who was talking about him still diving after being in the Premier League for two years. John McGinn turned around and said, you've been in the Premier League for six years and you're still wearing the same coat, you dick. Have a good time, listeners. We will see you next week.